God, we thank you so much for your word and the way that you speak to us through your word. We thank you for the life of Jesus, um, the way his life offers us wisdom into the good life. And more than that, we thank you for his willingness to die to redeem us from our sins. Um, we thank you for his teachings recorded for us in the Gospels. I pray that we would live according to these teachings, that we would find delight in walking according to the way of Christ. Um, I thank you so much for the folks in this room and their desire to be here early on a Sunday morning. I ask that our time together uh, would just be profitable in growing our love for you and our understanding of your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We are in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Um, and I think we just barely like touched on some of this. But uh, we'll, we'll start over in this little section here. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what, are you, uh, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I've, I've definitely had this conversation with my kids. What are you guys fighting, back, fighting about back there? Silence. Right? <laughs> Uh, verse 35, and he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, so this is another object lesson. Jesus is the master of teaching with object lessons. I wish I was good at this. I'm not. Um, he can take events in this circumstances going on around him and draw out of it lessons regarding the kingdom of God. And so the disciples, we talked about this, are still trying to sort out the pecking order, right? And, and I mentioned this, it was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it's really hard to live in the world and not kind of figure out where you fit in the pecking order. Um, and this is just a part, unfortunately, of life in a broken, fallen world. We are constantly comparing and contrasting ourselves to other people to figure out our place, our position, our rank. And Jesus had failed to provide this for them, right? He had failed to line them up tallest to shortest, smartest to dumbest, best looking to least looking, most competent to least competent. He had not given them any sort of system by which they could judge their place in his kingdom in his order and so they are working to figure it out for themselves and it's embarrassing for them it should be embarrassing for them because life in the kingdom of God is not like this it's upside down it's not uh, the way that we would typically order things right the wealthy are not first the intelligent are not first the um, strongest the most competent the most powerful that's not how the kingdom of God works. It's really upside down. In the kingdom of God, greatness is found in lowliness. That's exemplified for us in Jesus, right? Who is God. There's none greater. He makes himself a man. He humbles himself. He even dies a shameful death on the cross. One of the reasons the Romans typically rejected Christianity is because they couldn't imagine a God who would die. That's weakness. 
and uh, Roman culture had a lot to do with strength and power. You know, their gods were gods like Hercules, right? And so this Jesus who would die was not acceptable to them. And this is laid out for us best in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. I don't remember if we looked at this. I guess I could have gone back and listened to the audio. But even if we did, it was a couple weeks ago. It's worth looking at again. If you want to turn in your Bible, Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he kind of answers the question, why? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he lowered himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, right? So he's already humbled himself by going from God to man. And then he humbles himself again, Paul says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross. The most humiliating of all the Romans, Roman forms of execution. Um, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And it's difficult to even conceive of someone with greatness in this world doing this, right? I mean, I don't know. I guess that's sort of the closest thing that we can we get to like aristocracy or kind of like royalty would be our politicians and like how often do we find out oh this politician spent you know tens of millions of dollars flying on private jets this year why well because i'm not going to ride with these peons over here in the in the um coach class of your typical airline like that's just beneath me right like i'm special um and we get that all all over the place i mean yeah, so it's difficult to conceive of somebody with greatness like Jesus had doing what Jesus did. And this is why so often Christianity appeals to the masses and is often shunned by people that we would call kind of cultural elites. That's not always the case. You'd be surprised how many people with positions of money and power and influence and those kinds of things actually are Christ followers. But if you have greatness in the world, then... The message of Jesus is folly, isn't it? Your greatness in this sense means nothing. Your riches, your intelligence, your money, your fame, your power, it means nothing. And actually forsaking that and calling it nothing is how you come to have true greatness in the kingdom of God. And, you know, humility for somebody who has these things, power, prestige, money, etc., uh, doesn't seem like much of an added benefit to everything they already have. So money, power, fame, beauty, success, intelligence, achievement, none of these things count for anything in the kingdom of God. They're irrelevant. 
doesn't mean you can't necessarily do some good with them, but they don't get you anything extra in the eyes of God. Any questions or comments on any of that? Okay, so we have this picture of Jesus taking this child. Let's turn to Matthew 18, because this is kind of a correlating passage that I think maybe adds a little bit of clarity to what Jesus is teaching here. Um, because in Mark 9, so you have the apostles, they're bickering about who's the greatest. And then Jesus grabs this child and, uh, you know, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, so then let's read Matthew 18 verses one through six. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Really, they mean, which one of us is your favorite, Jesus? And calling to him a child, I guess the other thing that's funny about that is you wouldn't ask that question if you didn't assume the answer was going to be you, right? So they all kind of think they're pretty great. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child <clears throat> is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Right, so again, this is simply a lesson on humility that springs from this argument about who's the greatest. There are lots of things about children that are simply not praiseworthy. Um, I, I love kids, but kids are ignorant. They're messy. Don't misunderstand, kids. I love you. Glad you're here. But um, there's a lot of things about little kids that are not praiseworthy, right? And yet Jesus gives this as an object lesson. Um, every illustration has its limits. So Jesus is not saying, you know, be like a child in every way in which a child lives and acts. I think he, what he's saying is the admirable thing about children in this sense is that they are, they have trust in their parents, right? At least they should. Um, you know, my, my kids, for the most part, I think they, they trust me, right? Um, and that's an admirable character trait. That's something that we should have for God. Um, and the fact that children have trust for their parents is why it's such a terrible thing when that trust is broken by parents. But kids are completely dependent upon their parents. Um, I was surprised to find out yesterday that in Arizona, there is no minimum age to which you can leave your kids at home. So like you could literally leave like a three-year-old at home and that's not against the law. Now, the kid burns the house down, you're going to be in big trouble. But uh, that would be a foolish thing to do because we know that kids at that age are codependent, right? This came up because somebody was telling me that they were in there. Actually, John Wilberger was telling me he was in his front yard and the neighbor kid comes running and is like, um, there's a fire. And John's like, where? And the kid's like, in my house. Takes a kid in that, the seven-year-old kid in the house and uh, the kid had set the popcorn bag on fire in the, in the microwave and it was like burning in the microwave and on the floor. And so John like put it out. And so we're like, where were his parents? They were gone. They left the kid home alone, um, seven years old. The point is, 
the kid is dependent upon his parents. Even if the parents weren't there, he became dependent on the neighbor who could put the fire out and not cause the house to burn down. All right, so the point here is only God is great, and our role in relationship to God is to trust him. He is great. We are not. Humility means that we trust him. We look to him for our needs. And so we must come to Jesus like children, codependent, incompetent, helpless, useless, or we can't come at all. If you come to God thinking, I have something to offer you in your kingdom, then uh, you really have no place standing before him. Any other thoughts on that? I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think particularly when you get to like Matthew, the, the Matthew 18 version, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be cast into the sea. I think Jesus is speaking on two levels there. I think one, he is talking about the, the absolute disgusting nature of doing evil to innocent children. But I think on another level, he's also talking about young believers in Christ who are led astray by people who are who should be teaching them the way of Jesus and don't. Matthew 23, 13 is a good verse for what you just said. You lock up what do you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, you lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in it and you don't allow those entrants to go in. That's good. Thank you. That's a great cross-reference there. Those woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, right, are poignant. Um, yeah. I mean, because the reality is it's a far more grievous sin to lead people away from God even than it is to mistreat a child. Um, so, yeah. All right. Let's go back to Mark chapter 9. We'll keep going in verse 38. <clears throat> and it's really interesting to just think about how the different pieces of the Bible fit together, right? I think I, I, think I keep mentioning this, that in your Bible, the headers... Mark didn't put them in there, the verses. Mark didn't put the numbers in there. He didn't put the chapters in there. And I think we can think that, like, we're just watching different, like, random scenes of Jesus. But Mark has put this together intentionally in the order he did. And so I think verse 38 does connect to what's come before. But we'll talk about that. So verse 38 says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Right? In other words, Jesus, we saw somebody doing something great, but he's not attached to, to your greatness. He's not even among us. Like He's not as great as we are, but he has power doing this thing. So we try to stop him because he's not one of us. Verse 39, Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So this is a very interesting pericope, short passage, scene, if you will. So it appears this man is casting out demons. He's being successful in the work that he's doing. 
Remember what happened not too long ago in our read through Mark? Uh, back in verse 14, Jesus comes upon this scene where there's a boy who's possessed by an evil spirit and the disciples failed to help, right? So they recently, okay, you have to remember that even before that, Jesus sent them out. Uh, this is back in... Sorry, where's that? Chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus sends out the 12. And then when they come back in verse 30 of chapter 6, he they, they tell him all the things that they had done. Right? Um, these incredible accomplishments that they achieved in Jesus' name. And then Jesus disappears for a little bit to go up to the mountain for the transfiguration. And they're trying to help this boy possessed by a demon. And they fail. And then they get the story of this other guy they see who is doing the same kind of work. And he's succeeding. And they're like, no, no, man, shut it down. Like, you don't have the right license for this work. Like, you don't have the correct papers. You've not been authorized or endorsed by Jesus like we have. <clears throat> And so I think maybe there's even some jealousy here, possibly motivating them. The disciples are upset. This man does not belong to their exclusive group. He's not great like they are because he's not on the in crowd with Jesus. And so they try and shut it down. And of course, John is, I think, expecting Jesus to be like, yeah, that's what you should do. You should shut it down because they're not as cool as you. Um, and uh, it's, it's even interesting in verse 38 John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us, right? Not you, but us. So I think the connection in the context is twofold. First, it's connected to this question, who is the greatest, right? The answer to that question is only those who do the work of Jesus. Who is great? those who do the work of Jesus. And those doing the work of Jesus are not great in themselves. Why are they great? Because they're doing the work of Jesus, right? Because they're great because of their connection to him. So to say it another way, I think the disciples wanted Jesus to be upset that this man was having great ministry success, if you will, but he was not an exclusive member of the 12. And Jesus really is not interested in feeding their ego. So anyone who serves Jesus is actually great in the kingdom of God. Second, I think this is connected to the context because, you know, we already mentioned the, the disciples failed to cast out the demons. I think they're jealous this man is surpassing them in his success. He's actually showing that he's greater than them because he's doing the work of Jesus, not bickering about whether he's great or not, or at least not involved in the dispute of the disciples. And Jesus essentially tells the disciples, don't think about the kingdom of God in these terms, like your success or his success, your greatness, his greatness. No, think about the kingdom of God in terms of the greatness of Christ. And you don't need some magisterial endorsement to be on the team. You just need to do what Jesus does. Right? So I'm not necessarily against fancy degrees or anything like that. But that's not what makes somebody great in the kingdom of God, right? Some paper for your doctorate or your 
uh, THM or your MDiv or something like that, or you know the the book on the back of the book where it says so and so endorses this book and here's their endorsement, right? That's not what is essential. It is only Christ that is central. And notice that the person who's blessed in verse 41 is blessed, right? Truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink will by no means lose his reward. Is that what Jesus says? No, because I left out that important part. Because you belong to Christ, that person will not, will not lose their reward. So this is not a teaching that, that Jesus gives where he's saying people who do nice things like giving water to somebody in need will inherit the kingdom of God. No, this is a teaching about supporting one another in the work of doing what Jesus has called us to do. Right? So the connection is to the work of Christ in verse 41. Um, I think a difficulty with this section comes with failing to understand that verse 40 does have limits. Verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. So there's this thing called ecumenism. Ecumenism, I don't know how you would pronounce it. This ecumenical movement where we would say, where people will say, well, you know, that church over there has the name church. And this church over here has the name church. You know, even the Mormons, they like Jesus. And so they're not like against Jesus. They're for Jesus. And so look at this verse, you know, if, if they're not against him, if they're not pagans and atheists and God haters, then we should work with them, you know, because they're not against Jesus. So they must be for Jesus. Um, this is not a universalistic kind of endorsement. Of, of those who don't pick a side on the battle of good and evil. Does that make sense? Every person by default is on which side? The wrong side. The wrong side, right? Evil. You are born into sin. By default, if you are not for Jesus, then you are against, against him, right? There's no neutrality here. So I think what Jesus is saying is that if someone is invoking the name of Jesus, is bearing fruit for the kingdom of God through the name of Jesus, is doing it according to the teachings of Jesus, by the power of the spirit of Jesus, then that is a ministry which Jesus supports. And, and that has to be the case, I think, because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? And if we're to do what Jesus does, Jesus obeyed the Father. And he always wanted to glorify the Father. Yes, amen. Jesus obeyed the Father. He sought to glorify the Father. I, I think, so this is why we just have to, we have to think really carefully about what we're reading in the Bible. I think this is a warning not to believe that you, your church, your ministry have exclusive rights to do ministry and only your particular brand is the right one. I think that's, that's really kind of what Jesus is getting at. Now, this may seem silly and obvious, but it's actually a huge problem. Um, again, 
John, I'll use John Wilberger again. He was telling me a couple weeks back, he ended up at, a, at another church. Maybe it was a couple months back. Maybe I already told this story. But he ends up at this church and they're teaching on giving because they're doing this building campaign. And the pastor says, you know, it's really important you give to our building campaign. We need to raise this money because our goal is to put one of our churches within 15 minutes of every person in the valley. As if the only place that you could go to hear the gospel is at one of their branded churches. As if there isn't already within every house, 15 minutes of every home in Phoenix, an opportunity to hear the gospel. Does that make sense? Like, I think, I think Jesus would probably respond to that and be like, no, no, there's lots of people doing my work for my kingdom. It doesn't need to be this particular church branded. Um, and uh, I have a quote here from J.C. Ryle on this passage. Uh he says, happy is the person who knows something of the spirit of Moses when Moses said, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. And of the apostle Paul when he said, Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Right? Christians are not at competition with one another to proclaim the gospel. And so where the gospel is being proclaimed, we should celebrate that even if we do have some differences. Any co comments or thoughts or questions on any of that? Okay, but there's two more difficulties with this passage. Um, here's the verse that we just read, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Somebody want to read Matthew 12, verse 30 for us? Right? Whoever's not with me is against me. So is this a contradiction? Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Mark chapter 9, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Contradiction? Somebody want to? Or what about Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How do you bring these things together? How do you reconcile this? A lot. That's always like a safe answer. Jesus is concerned with the heart. Absolutely. Amen to that. I think a lot of times when people are like, look, contradiction, these two verses, they contradict each other. Well, we have to understand here that Jesus is talking about three different, totally, three totally different situations, right? Um, 
you know, if I if I go to a burger joint and I order my burger and I say, uh, I don't like bread, and so serve me the burger without the bread, does that necessarily mean that I wouldn't eat croutons in a salad? Like, does it necessarily mean that I would never, under any circumstances, eat bread? Like, the, the context determines the limits of the declaration. Okay, so Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, these are all different points. If you cannot acknowledge the power of God in the works of Jesus, then your heart is hard towards the things of God. Right, so if you're not with Jesus, you're against him. I, already, I actually already made that point, right? So Jesus is making a different point here than he is in, in Mark chapter 9. Matthew chapter 7 there are some who operate in the name of Jesus and they actually do some pretty impressive things, but they neglect the law of love. That's why they're workers of lawlessness and they'll be exposed as frauds because the true power of the gospel is found in the law of love, Christ-like sacrificial love. So don't let people pull this trick on you where it's like, oh, we got this verse and this verse and they contradict each other. No, no, you have to understand the context in which the conversation was happening. So here's a point of application, I think. Going back to Mark chapter 9, verse 40. I think we should be careful where we draw the lines between those who are on our team and those who are not. Um, the truth is super important. That's why we want to be vigilant to exclude those who don't hold to the truth. But we also want to be careful not to exclude those who do. Right? We might disagree on some different points, some finer points. But um, we don't want to exclude those who do hold to the truth. So this is why at Maricopa Springs, if you've been through our membership class, I say that our statement of faith is exclusively Christian and inclusively Christian. We're trying to walk this line. Um, I think the most difficult place for me to work this out, though, is in the context, I keep using that word, that's not the best word, the distinction between an immature believer and a non-believer. Um, we're going to get to talking about divorce, probably not today, but, and maybe I've mentioned this as well, but there's a guy that I know, he doesn't even live in Arizona, so none of you know him, so I'm, I feel fine talking about it. Um, he calls himself a believer, he's divorcing his wife. She just got the papers this week, and they've been separated for a while. She's just a, a friend of mine, and he, he became a friend of mine as well. But And um, is it possible that he's an immature believer? I really don't think so either. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I, I cut you off. Well, I mean, it's one thing to be immature, but you can teach anybody that's immature the truth, and then what do they do with it? That, that's the problem. You, you cannot know something, but then when you say, hey, the Bible says this, what do you do with it? Then you're not immature. Then you're just... Yeah, that's good. That's a great distinction. Thank you. That's actually super helpful. Yeah, because you would think that an immature person, when you present them with the right way, the better way, the true way, that they would be like, okay, I want to go that way, right? I, I may have I may have a hard time with it, right? Their marriage is such a mess. Maybe he says something like, all right, like I'm willing to kind of slowly begin to work this thing out so we can reconcile. Okay, you know, um, but to just be like, no, I won't do that. I, I think that that is clearly a non-believer. And, and you're demonstrating you're not a man or woman of your word when, you, when we all witness you say, for better or worse, till death do us part, 
I'm pretty sure they probably said those words. Yeah. And yeah, I don't see them dying. And right. It's just a bad time. Yeah. Get out. Yep. Yeah, and we'll, we're going to talk about it more because that's the next section. I mean, we actually probably won't get there today, but yes, please. No, it's, it's, um, continuing the discussion about marriage and giving you wow, your vow is not to each other but to God. Yeah. So it's really like scary. I mean, if you break that, oh man, and yeah, it's I don't know. Well, this you only break it to your husband, but. Important is you break it. Before. Yeah, you break it. Right, absolutely. And th this guy is is super intelligent. He's very, very brilliant. And so he's given me all these very long emails about why he's justified in his actions. And I, I told him actually something on Matthew twenty three. You, you're a hypocrite. You strain out the gnats and you swallow the camel. Right? Like, you talk about the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai and how. That's really what Jesus was talking about. I'm like, that's not in the Bible. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. What about his word? Get there. What about his vows? Yeah. I'm you brought that up. I mean, I don't understand. Then you, I can't even talk to you because you're you're just going to dismiss. Like, you act like you're loyal a friend or whatever, but you'll dismiss me at the drop of a hat if it does not convenient for you. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of where that's where I, 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 I tried to leave things, but then he did respond to a couple of my other questions. But essentially, I've had to just say, like, well, I, I can't share the fellowship of Christ's body and blood with you because you're unfaithful to him. So we'll see. He's not responding to my most recent email. You can pray for him. I'd appreciate that. The signs seem increasingly clear that his heart is just absolutely hardened to this. But All right, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We looked at that in Matthew 18. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone who be... For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Man, there's a whole bunch to talk about here. Let's see if we can get through it today. Uh, first, do you notice that there are two verses missing? Look at the verse numbers. It goes 42, 43, 45, 47. 48, 49, 50. So if you're reading the King James Version or the NASB, you have the, the Geneva Bible. Yeah, so uh, this is... Mine has them with the bracketed one. Bracketed, okay. Maybe it's got a footnote that says, you know, some manuscripts insert these. Um... So this, this deals with a subject that we've talked about before. I think even Rick brought it up a few weeks back about another verse that was missing from Mark. And actually, we'll get to it again at the end of Mark in chapter 16. Um, this is a, a science, if you will, called text criticism. Um, it may not interest you, but biblical scholars are frequently wrestling with the question what did Mark actually write in the very first document that he produced? 
because we don't have that document. We have copies of copies of copies of that document. And um, you know, when you copy anything, at least before there were copiers, there was always the potential that you might um, spell something incorrectly, leave something out, you know, maybe you make a note in the margin and then the next copy includes that note in the margin. If you're really interested in this, this is not a class on this subject, so we're, we're gonna kind of skim over it. Um, there's a brand new book out called Scribes and Scriptures that I would recommend to you. Um, that's very good. It's actually by two of my professors at Phoenix Seminary who have spent their lives studying this stuff. And uh, so I would encourage you to maybe look into a resource like that. The other thing that I would say is that you can be absolutely confident that the Bible that you're reading is the Word of God. All right. You don't need to question that. Um, but as we have studied more and more manuscripts, more and more closely, there are some places where it's been determined like this was not in the original manuscript. This was added at some point in the process of the preservation of the text. And so where that has become abundantly clear, most new translations will just pull that out and make a footnote. So in this case, it is verse 48. Right? What you have that's missing in verse 44 and 46 is verse 48. So it's there. It's just not repeated three times. Okay? Any questions on that? Oh, you guys are easy then. All right. We'll just move on. Um, this line about where the worm does not die, that's in verse 48, and the fire is not quenched. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 66, 24, the very last verse of Isaiah. Isn't that kind of interesting? Um, but there's good textual evidence that it, it wasn't actually in the document that Mark himself penned. All right, verse 42, I think we kind of already talked about this, that I think a lot of people wrongly assume that Jesus is only talking about children here. Um, the child, I think, if, if, if it's remaining present for this part of the conversation, because back in uh, uh, verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. It's just kind of an interesting idea. A lot of times I think we, we think that Jesus is just hanging out with his apostles, like the 12. But there's other people around. In this case, there's a kid around. Um, I, but, so I think he's continuing this illustration with possibly the kid being right there in front of them. Um, the term little ones, right? So whoever causes one of these little ones, I think is further defined by the phrase, who believe in me. Right? So he's not merely talking about children necessarily. He's talking about people who profess faith in Christ. Um, so, as I mentioned, I do think God will have a particularly harsh judgment in store for those who abuse little children because of the innocent nature of childhood. But I don't think that's the point Jesus is making here. I think this is a warning not to lead a, a much, an immature brother or sister in the faith astray. So this guy that I've been corresponding with about his divorce, in, in every email, he's like, well, I've got this advisor who says, yes, I should, I should divorce her for this reason. That person would be better having a millstone hung around their neck than encouraging him in the sin that he's doing. 
So how many false teachers today have invisible millstones around their necks? We can't see them, but they're there because they are leading immature people astray. Um, and I think it's really fascinating that Mark, after giving us a teaching where Jesus warns us not to engage in like hypersectarianism, right? If they're not against me, they're for me. This guy casting out demons in my name, having success, he's actually doing my work. Don't tell him to stop. Now, Mark gives us this teaching from Jesus where he says that we should treat truth with such high regard that millstones and knives are required, right? The millstone around the neck of the person who leads the child astray, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. When, uh, uh, real quick, back to the, your comment about the invisible millstone. I heard, you know, we all heard the quote, it's something you have to see, you know, see it to believe it kind of thing. But um, I heard this quote the other day, and I'm wondering if it's uh, some things have to be believed to be seen, and that's like a good example. Yeah. yeah. There's a millstone. Yeah. I can see it. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Some things have to be believed to be seen. It's yeah. Kind of like the angels that were encamped around the, the village and their eyes were opened up. Yeah. Totally. And even just, you cannot taste the power of God until you believe that it is able to do what you're asking God to do. That's good, man. Um, what's amazing is that there's lots of people wearing those millstones and their soul is light as a feather. And they just have no idea. Well, maybe they do have an idea. I think some of them probably do have an idea and they just don't care. Medication's making them light as a <laughs> Yeah, probably. All right, so this is a super vivid teaching uh, about the danger of sin. Uh, starting in verse 42, but it goes on into verse 43 and 45 and 47. Um, so this is also recorded for us by Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, I really think that Jesus is speaking on two levels here. Okay. So I will point out to you. Well, I'll just ask you. You ever been in a church where men are missing eyes or hands? Like where people have intentionally gouged out their eye or cut off their hand? Why not? I've been in churches where people don't have TVs and people don't have, um, you know, I think the legitimate things that we're talking about. Yeah. That's good. So I, I think, uh, I, I think, like I said, Jesus is speaking on two levels. Okay, on one level, I think he's saying kind of what you're saying. Like we don't take the seriousness of sin or we don't address sin with the level of seriousness that we should. Sin is a problem, and it will lead you to hell. If you indulge it, it will produce the destruction of your soul. Okay? And I don't think we... We, we shrug off sin, like, oh, no big deal, right? Um, but on another level, I think we sort of intuitively understand that... that that the big problem with sin is not the material consequences. It is, it is a matter of the heart, right? So, I mean, I think if I was counseling a dude who was struggling with pornography and I was like, well, just pluck out your eyes and you'll be in good shape, he would probably be like, well, I don't really need my eyes for this. No, you don't. Like, they're the vehicle that you use to indulge a deeper problem, which is desire in your heart. 
right? So I think this is particularly clear in Matthew chapter 6 because the teaching of the Pharisees was sin management. It was very external. You can get into the kingdom of God by just not doing bad things, not doing bad things. And Jesus is getting at this idea, actually, the problem is that you desire to do bad things. And even if you didn't have eyeballs that allow you to do the lust, you still have lust present in your heart. Does that make sense? So I'm not diminishing what you were saying, that like there may be a need, throw the TV out, right? Get rid of the internet. If that's the, if you can't exercise the self-control that allows you to conquer those things, then cut it out. Like literally cut it out of your life. Um, but that still leaves you with the problem that the desire is lurking there. And that needs to be addressed by having God change your heart. Or renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the shift from 42 to 43, I think, is a little bit jarring. Right? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow, it'd be better for him. That's fascinating. Okay. And then if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life crippled than two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Um, how many churches have people sitting in the pews where the cutting that needs to be done is the person who's leading them? Right? You should cut off the dangerous pastor leading you astray. Now, the Bible does tell us to be slow in rebuking elders in 1 Timothy 5.19. That's true. But sometimes we withhold rebuke when we shouldn't. You know, I, I've seen sermons where the pastor preaches on... Um, uh, oh, shoot. What is it? This verse from the Old Testament. Don't, don't hinder the man of God or don't approach the man of God or something like that. It has to do with the a Lord's problem. Anointed. Yeah, don't, don't touch the Lord's anointed or something like that, you know. And, uh, of course, they're basically saying that I, as the pastor, am, am above rebuke and reproach. Because David says that about Saul and he won't kill Saul because yeah, he's the Lord's that's right. Yeah. I, th I feel like there's another one, though that's similar to that, that has to do with maybe Elijah or something like that. But let's just go with that one because we're certain about it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, the, the simple truth is that nobody is above rebuke. I mean, other than God himself, other than Christ, right? Peter already tried that and it didn't go very well. Um... All right, so, and then you can notice the subtle wording of verses 43 and 45. It is better for you to enter life, lame, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Um, that's verse 45, 43. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. So, what is life in this context? I think I would say that true life has everything to do with proximity to God. 
right? Life is to be found in the giver of life, in nearness to him, in obedience to him. So our true life, that is spiritual life, began the day that we surrendered ourselves over to Christ as Lord. The day that we repented and turned to him in faith, that's when life began. And uh, I know I've said this before, many people that are walking around in the world today are dead. You know, they have breath in their lungs and they have a heartbeat, but they are literally dead. And many people who claim to be Christians are still not clear on what life is. You know, they still think it's to be found in the things of this world, and so they're pursuing them rather than pursuing the giver of life, who is Christ. And that has begun already, but the fullness is still yet to come. So I remember a transformative moment in my life in college where I realized that the gospel that I believed was really a gospel of death and salvation, not eternal life now, right? So eternal life is, is, a, is a statement of temporal nature, time, but in another sense, it's also a statement of a kind of quality of life. You have already entered into, as a believer, eternal life. And it will go on forever, but it's also a life that is the very life of God himself who breathes it into you. And the fullness is yet to be revealed when we finally, well, shuffle off this mortal coil, if you will, like Shakespeare says, Hamlet. Um, the fullness is yet to come, but we've already begun down that road. I'm not really sure what to do with the transition from 48 to 49 to 50. I legitimately have no idea what verse 49 means. Does anybody have an idea what verse 49 means? You want to hear what the Geneva notes say? Sure. It says, we must be seasoned and powdered by God, both that we may be acceptable sacrifices unto him, and also that we being knit together may season one another. What is being baptized with, like, fire? You're going to go through the fire? Like, understand. So I like, I like both of those. The, my, I guess my problem there would be that everyone, for everyone, you know what I'm saying? I guess maybe, maybe the Geneva Bible, everyone will be a sacrifice to God. Either you will be a sacrifice made to show his wrath and righteousness, his perfect holiness, because you rejected him, and he will be glorified by the sacrifice of your life in showing forth his wrath. Right? Vessels of wrath. That sacrifice word is not in the early, in the best translations either, right? Do you have that section of that 49? Mine just says uh, everyone will be salted with fire, but I know. Yeah, no, no. This says everyone will, mine says everyone will be salted with fire. Why is that a sacrifice thing? I would just. Well, that's kind of what she was saying, right? That's what you read out of the Geneva Bible? Maybe I misunderstood. Yeah, and then they also say that is uh, being seasoned with the incorruptible. Yeah, and again, I think my problem there would just be everyone, right? Like, what the, how does this verse apply to everyone? I guess maybe I can make sense of fire for judgment or fire for purifying, but I don't know how to bring both, I don't know how to bring it together with the word everyone. 
I, I think the, the, every, the wicked are going to go through the fires of Gehenna. Which, by the way, that word in hell is Gehenna, right. which is a real place where people were thrown, the dead bodies were thrown. I, and I just say all that because like, the word hell, everybody has um, extra biblical ideas of what hell means. And I would just encourage everyone to go through the Bible and make see what, what hell really teaches, like what that word is and what that place. Because here, the only context you have is that you will be thrown into Gehenna, which is a real place in a physical, te- in a physical realm bodies were destroyed after death and just like you said uh you know there's a two-phase to our, our eternal life it's we have eternal life now and and come well the people that are walking around dead right now they have two phases too they're walking around dead and they ultimately will die physically um but i say all that because uh those people are going to be test you know go through the fire and we're going through the fire and whatever good things remain you know it's like burning off the dross kind of thing right i mean that's how i was yeah that first that's how you read verse 49, everyone yeah. would be salted with fire. I guess maybe 50 could also answer your question where the people, the other people would have unsavory, salty. Say that again? Maybe the other people that weren't believers would be, have the salt that's unsavory. I don't know what it calls it in your Bible, but like the one that has no flavor. Okay. So it's useless, basically. It's like, it's the, uh, the way that uh, you say what's in your heart, right? Like people can get rid of uh, the things that cause them to sin or whatever, but they're not fixing their heart. Well, that's what the fire is going to do: is burn around, burn everything off, and and see what stands. So it's a purifying kind of fire. Yeah, or and the salt, like and the salt, you know, keeps preserves things. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we need to. I mean, we need to wrap it up. I mean, I I went to some different commentaries looking for some thoughts on this, and they're. All, all the commentaries were like, this is kind of a tricky verse. What exactly does Jesus have in mind here? Even considering kind of the context of it. But maybe we're overthinking it. Um, I, I take salt it and make it seasoned. Like you're seasoned with fire. Like you're going to be, you're going to, we're all going to pass through the fire. And whatever legit is going to be standing. And only, you know, it's like building a ministry, right? That's Corinthians verse. Yeah. Whatever is going to go through the fire. And whatever's like not burned up the yeah, last is legit yeah and uh, everyone that's probably good gonna go through that yeah yeah that makes sense yeah and i mean that that's what this life is right it, it is it is a trial it is a test um to see whether you will trust god and whether you will give him glory and whether you will walk in obedience to him um i'll make i'll make one comment about verse 50 and, and actually, I'm going to really connect it to uh, Matthew chapter 5, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Um, go back and reread that. Because if you think about what Jesus is saying there, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm unclear on this. Uh, I'm unsure about it, I guess. Because for all my life, I heard, you know, you are the salt of the world. Jesus is talking about Christians. But if you... If you Think about where Jesus is teaching that. He's not talking to Christians. He's not giving a sermon in a church. He's just talking to people. So, you know, is that meant to say people are the salt of the world and they're meant to be salty? They're meant to give glory to God? They're they're meant to enhance the flavor of the creator in the creation he made for his glory? And they're failing to do that. And so they need to come back and do that well. Um, 
you know, I, I kind of think maybe that's actually what Jesus has in mind. Because he's, at least at that point, he's talking to just a crowd of people, um, not necessarily believers. But uh, maybe Mark kind of puts a hole in that idea. Um, <clears throat> because here he says, you know, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Um, maybe that also connects back to like the bickering. You know, this guy is doing this work, but he's not part of us. And Jesus is saying, no, be unified around the kingdom of God. Yeah, I don't know. I think we'll have to stop there. Sorry to end on a note of not entirely sure. But I do like what Rick said at the end there. The every, Everyone will pass through this fire of judgment. And, you know, what is of Christ will remain. And what is not will be burned up. What, what about the last part real quick? It says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. I, I think of like iron sharpening iron. It's like, you're going to be a little salty with like that pastor that's teaching in there. You should go up and approach him and get a little spicy, but still be at peace and, and figure it out. That's so good. That's I like that. Yeah. That is good. That's a good, good explanation. All right, but let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that we would uh, just take from here the seriousness of sin and how dangerous and destructive it is. And I pray that we would heed the words of Jesus and that we would do whatever it takes to cut sin out of our lives. And we thank you that that's possible by grace. We thank you that we've already been given this eternal life in Christ. I pray that we would live worthy of the gift that we have been given not because we earned it, but because it's been given so freely. Um, Let us walk in this truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.